Check out Psalm 51. Psalm 51, where we have David, the Messiah of Israel. He's not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, Messiah means the anointed one, and he is definitely, in his day, the one God had anointed as king over Israel. And um, in fact, when David was challenged by his uh, subordinates to kill um, King Saul, as Saul was in the cave covering his feet, David said he would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, Mashiach. See, that's what we're saying about Jesus is he's the ultimate king of Israel in the line of David. Well, last time we got through about verse 6 of this awesome psalm, and I trust that you recall Psalm 51 is a, is a prayer. It's an extended lyric prayer of recovery, of relationship with God, having broken fellowship with God through gross personal sin. The gross personal sin in David's life, very likely something you have never dealt with. He committed adultery, which resulted in a a pregnancy. And then to cover up the adultery, to take the woman as his wife and, and let her have the baby in his household, he had her husband killed, who was his own subordinate and one of the great moral voices in the Old Testament. Uriah the Hittite is one of the great moral voices of the Old Testament. Soldiers need to study him. It's not a big, long study. He doesn't show up for very long, but it's 2 Samuel chapter 11. Soldiers should study him, his attitude, his devotion to duty, and his practices. When the soldiers are in the field, the battalion commander is in the field with them. If they're being rained on, he's being rained on too. If they're suffering all the many privations of being outside where the elements are eating you away versus inside where it's nice and comfortable and cushy, that's what the leader has to do. He has to be there with his men. And that's the point of the setting of the story of David's sin with Bathsheba as he's not doing that thing that men need to do to be with their men, to lead them, to be about their duty. And one of the great takeaways from David's failure, and remember David's the man after God's own heart. He is the anointed of God. He is all the things that he is, and he's the paradigm king from then on that God's prophets will compare the kings to. They walked after the Lord as their father David had done, or they didn't follow the Lord as their father David had. David is the paradigm in the Old Testament for someone that is drawing near to God and serving him, and yet he has this gross immorality. This is, a, this is actually an apologetic for the Bible. The Bible doesn't read like the literature of the contemporary nations around it. 3,000 years ago in 1,000 B.C., we can dig up and have dug up literature written by the kings and prophets of other nations. The, the wise men and, and, and all and the kings, their little scribes would say all kinds of things about their kings. We could read about Nabonidus' exploits and Nebuchadnezzar and all these different kings of antiquity. But what you find is they brag and they will cover over the things that were disasters in their reign. And they'll only talk about the good things. Kind of like a State of the Union address here. 
where I just talk about your accomplishments. You could say the horrible thing that I just did, the awful travesty, is this great success. Isn't that wonderful? And, and they spin everything. But th- there's no spin here. David did this, and he's portrayed in 2 Samuel chapter 11 as the villain. He, the hero of every David story, is the villain of this story, and Uriah has taken his place as the David character. And that is an apologetic, that's a demonstration of something special about the Bible. This is how we are. Sometimes you're the villain. And the issue is not, if you're, I'm not hurting anybody, it's what are you doing with your relationship with God? And eventually you can start seeing that as the iceberg pokes up out of the water, the little tip of it that's visible, you can see how you're affecting other people as you become this self-deceived, carnal villain. But the problem is, as David points out in Psalm 51, it's not primarily what he did to other people. It's his personal relationship with God. It's, it's compromised. It's broken. And God requires uh, a brokenness and a change of, of heart. All right. Uriah is uh, the hero, David is the villain in the story, and David is recovering his senses and his sense of responsibility and relationship with God in Psalm 51. And let's just grab some of the poetic arrangement. Um, We've read it several times. Let's grab verse 1. It says, Behold me, and it's the first of many requests David makes, technically. Behold, look upon me. Pay attention to me. Look at me is the question the request he's making, according to your loving kindness. So what I want you to do is look at me through the eyes of the lens of your character, of your kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now this is a a translation that I put back into the order of Hebrew. Like if you got in a Hebrew interlinear Bible, this is the order of things. And what I'd like to do throughout Psalm 51, and I do this sometimes, it's been a few years since we've done this, but look at where the rhyme is in thought. Behold and blot out are the requests. If we want to be nerds, the grammar is these are the verbs. (laughs) But the focus, the thing that's in the center of his arrangement is God's character. So David brings need and guilt. God brings compassion and loving kindness. Whenever there is the concept of recovery from personal sin, the issue is not that I've done something about my sin. It is always the character of God who desires to forgive you, who desires to walk with you, who wants you with him. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Never go to God And your failure, as though relationship with him is in question. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're his child. And he's an excellent and infinitely perfect and good and righteous father. So this is the way David thinks of it. God, give me your kindness. He also points out, notice there's nothing he can do about his sin. He tried to cover it up. He just got into, in deeper and deeper. Now, David isn't a murderer by nature, if you will, right? You don't think of David as this murderer. Now, some people like to grab one verse and say, he was a man of warfare. He was a man of bloodshed. 
And it's probably this bloodshed. 2 Samuel 11, the prophet is saying, the prophet who wrote 2 Samuel, probably Nathan, is saying David should have been out to war in Rabbah. It's his job before Yahweh. But he is a murderer here. But he isn't, you know, he's like the murderers in prison. He's not the worst guy in town. It's not like he's murdering people every day. He's not, you know, he just, just once here and there. <laughs> right? But this is how it is. He's done this. And he has nothing he can do to save himself. There's nothing you do about his sin. Snuggle up to this attitude about personal sin. We should really embrace this. There's nothing I can do about this. I know I'm supposed to not kill people and commit adultery and all the things. I know that I'm supposed to tell the truth to you. I know that I haven't. I know that I'm in, I'm in, in and that now we're telling the truth. David is depending upon God. This is all faith all the time as you go through Psalm 51. We saw this important thing about God's compassion and character. In verse 2, he says, thoroughly wash me from iniquity. That's another word for sin, transgression. And from my sin, cleanse me. What's the focus here? Not the requests, but the need. He's focused in on the need. And so he switched from the character of God in verse 1 to the need that he has in verse 2. And we can see these together, that we switch from a focus on God's loving kindness and compassion to David's brokenness and need. And so right there is the contrast between us and God. And God wants us to know that. And he wants us to see that and accept that. And what that does to my self-righteousness, my Christian hypocrisy, my sense of, oh, I'm the good person. It's not Christian. Christianity, built on the Old Testament, the New Testament coming out of the Old, Christianity is this attitude of brokenness before God. In verse 3, he, say, he says, For my transgressions I know, and my sin is before me continually. See how he's rhyming in thought? Transgression, another word for sin. Chata, sin, is I know it and it's before me. So two different ways of saying the same thing. That's how Hebrew poetry works. And then in verse 4, he says, Against you, you only, I've sinned. And we've talked about the theological problems of that statement. There's a way in which this is true, and it's what David means, and there's a way in which it's not true, and it's not what he means. David sinned against many people, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the offense of God's perfect righteousness. And to David, as he's speaking to God, he understands at least this much of his creator, that the affront to perfect righteousness is infinitely more significant than the way you and I as little babies in the playpen hurt each other, even with the horrible things that he's done to other people here. Now, this is kind of a gut check for us. It's a little bit of a, of a depth reading or something, a sounding, right? Where do you see the offenses against you in comparison to the offenses against God? How do you see that working? Most human beings, including a lot of Christians, they think that all there is is what hurts and touches me. And it's all about me. And why don't you know this? There's one word in the book. It's on the cover. It says me. And when you open the book, it says me. It's the book of Beaker, the Beaker Christian. Me, 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 me. Do you all know Beaker? He's a Muppet. Works for Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. 
All he ever says is me, 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 me. And it's very anxious the way he does it, and it's quite hilarious. But that's how we are sometimes. And we think that I've been offended, I've been hurt. Think about what, God, what David did to Uriah, what he did to Bathsheba. It's all true. And if what David says in verse 4 is true, that against God and God alone has he sinned, then we're starting to learn something about the nature of S-I-N. It isn't just, well, I'm not really super broken about this, so I'll just move on. Great. But that's not what's going on with God. Infinite, perfect righteousness is the eternal pre-context, is the eternal context from eternity past for all that is. Because before there was anything, God was there and then he made everything. And so infinite, perfect, moral, righteous, goodness, and holiness is the original context for reality. And here we come in here, tripping along, committing personal sins of arrogance, of self-righteousness, of bitterness, all the things. And this is so helpful. This riddle of against you and you alone have I sinned is very helpful for me. I pray that it helps you because it's absolutely true that the affront to God's righteousness is on an infinite scale more important than whether you felt bad about what somebody did to you or as bad as you did feel and use it as a reference. Take the worst thing someone's ever done to you. They did sin against you. They, they, they killed your loved one or some, some, some awful thing. You were tortured. Something absolutely unthinkable that happened to you and you're traumatized. Take that kind of abuse from a human being and then let the person doing it say to God against you and you alone have I sinned and understand what we're trying to say. What happened to you is true. The way it affected you was how it affected you. It's unbelievably painful. But take that and then zoom out in terms of scale to the infinite righteousness of God and then say, that's the ultimate and main affront. And what I've done, as big as it is, compared to the offense of righteousness. That's why Romans is about God's righteousness and it tells us why we need a savior. The Bible doesn't say, don't you feel particularly sinful? The Bible says that if you could see God in his glory, exalted and lifted up, if you could see God on his throne, then like Isaiah, a pretty solid guy, member of court, cousin to the king, you would fall on your face and say, I'm ruined for I've seen the Holy One of Israel. I'm a man of unclean lips. You would immediately see the contrast between your relative righteousness and God's infinite perfect righteousness. And that's what he's talking about when he says against you, you only I have sinned. And it's explicit. There's no way out of it when he says you only. You, Levad, only. The evil thing in your eyes I've done. This evil thing I've done. So isn't this fantastic? that you can look at the things that people have done or what you've done becomes known and then all of a sudden your gross personal sin becomes such a shock. It becomes such an offense to you, to your sensibility. Just remember, as bad as you think it is toward you or as bad as you're offended by it, we're not even on the ballpark of what it's saying with God's righteousness. Perspective is a helpful thing if, if God will grant it to us. Therefore, you're righteous when you speak and you're pure when you judge. <clears throat> this is an important thing to bring out. When you get a judgment, uh, when I get a judgment, I may not be so hot on receiving that judgment. This is David speaking sometime after 
he had uh, been told by the prophet Nathan that God's judgment was that the baby that they had produced in this moment of passion, covered over by a murder and then a wedding, David took Bathsheba as one of his many wives, that this, this sin would result in discipline from God and that their baby would die. Again, we say, oh, that's too much. It's too harsh. It's not, a, I mean, it's too rough. Why? Why? It's, it's on this account that we know of what we call the, the age of accountability. David says, when his baby dies, he will no longer come to me, but I will go to him. God knows what he's doing with that baby, and God knows what he's doing with David and Bathsheba. He's got this in hand, and he's the sovereign creator, and it's not our job. It's not our job to, from our vast resources of reason and moral sense, to see if we can put God on trial and see if we can. We don't have the resources to do this. God is working with actual calculus, and we are drawing stick figures with fat crayons. And that's what you have to do. You have to go, God, you've got this. You're, you're the creator. You've done it. You've made me. You've given me life. And now I know why for you. God is righteous when he speaks and pure when he judges. This, this is where we're seeing David as a man after God's own heart. If we'll hold our place for just a second and look in First uh, Samuel 13. A little story of David's predecessor, King Saul. It's early in his, in his king, kingly reign. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gilgal. Of Benjamin, but he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Saul is a good recruiter for an army. That's part of what the Spirit of God enables him to do is to rally the the nation to war. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, and they came up and camped in Michmash, the east of Beth Haven. We have movies today where they're trying to show what is involved when you have thousands and thousands of troops on the field. Historically, this has always been a difficult thing in terms of screenplays because you need those thousands of people. Like think, think of these massive spectacle movies of the 60s like Spartacus, 50s and 60s, or, the, or even the Ten Commandments where they try to, try to show an army. Now they just, you know, they use computer imagery. But um, just in your mind's eye, let it sink in that we're looking at an anthill someone kicked, a big one that's just covered with troops. It's, it's black with soldiers across the field. And what they're going to do is kill you and then do whatever they want to your household. 
And that's the threat that Israel is facing. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead, so they're refugees. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him uh, trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel the prophet and priest did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from Saul. Saul needs an army. He needs the Lord to provide him an army because he needs to go fight this, this threat. And he's, his back is up against the wall, and he is under great stress, and he needs God's favor. But the point of the story I believe as Samuel is writing this, having experienced it, whatever prophet wrote this uh, under and after Samuel, is showing you in this story a conflict that you have an impossible military force unless we can muster the troops. In the winter of 1776, George Washington's military force had gone from something like 20,000 men to two. And a huge portion of them were sick and not fit to fight. It was as though the entire effort had dwindled away in six months from July of 1776 or June of 1776 to to December. They had lost the momentum and the hope. They had been defeated and defeated and defeated. Ten different occasions, Washington's army had to retreat. They'd been decimated, and where are we? In these kinds of straits, you can imagine the way a a commanding general must be overwhelmed with the pressure. This is why, as we talked yesterday in the men's huddle, George Washington was called the indispensable man because he wasn't a great general. He wasn't some tactical genius, but he was poised. He did hold his composure and say, we're going to see this through inch by inch by excruciating inch. We're going to be patient and we're going to do what we can and we're going to attack with force. And so you get one victory in 1776 at Christmas, the Christmas present of Washington at Trenton. Verse 8 of 1 Samuel 13, Saul needs God's favor. So he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from Saul. So he's losing what's left of his army in the face of a military force that if all of Israel, the fighting men, show up, we have a chance on the battlefield. Now, we're in 1 Samuel 13. We're generations after Gideon. We should know by now the battle is the Lord's, and we're going to trust him. But this is the missing component in Saul's calculation. He doesn't trust God. So Saul said, bring me the, the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Why would he do that? Because the offering is offering something to God. It's worship offered to God. And the theory is that if I do this offering to God, then God will give me favor and save our bacon. That's not a very kosher thing to say in this Hebrew context. He'll save our bacon from the fire. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. The the conflict is Saul is overwhelmed with stress. He does what he thinks is the best thing with his faithless calculation. He's not trusting God, so he's not obeying God. And he does what he thinks is expedient. 
And so now we are, as the audience, invited by the prophet writing this to evaluate. Well, that wasn't right that Saul offered the burnt offering. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul says, hey, Samuel, it's good to see you. I'm so glad you came. May God give us grace and blessing on this battle. However, he greeted him. And Samuel doesn't have any of it. The first words out of Samuel's mouth, as the narrator tells us, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering both from me and that you did not come within the appointed time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of Yahweh, the favor of the Lord our God. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. This is perfectly understandable, perfectly acceptable rationale For most of us, we will say, without any sort of OCD, proprietary protocol, it's got to be done this way, we will say, I get it. I understand. And it's written that way, so you'll say that. I understand what he's saying. And what happens next is the revelation of God. What happens next is that we get to know who we're dealing with, where we, it's not us. God is not like us. Uh, the most unused or the most overused passage to describe God's character is Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. If you read that in context, read the whole paragraph, the topic is compassion and forgiveness. God is the forgiving God and we are the petty non-forgiving ones. But here, God is expecting a certain course that the king, the Messiah, the anointed of Israel doesn't take. And so to whom much is given, much is expected. Or as uh, as they say in Marvel, uh, with great power comes great resp- uh, responsibility or however they say that. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. The would have is the part that hangs in the air, doesn't it? He would have. The king has to carry out God's instructions. He is not the ultimate king. He's the subordinate king under God, the king. And Saul disregards that. It's just like when Moses struck the rock. When Moses hits the rock the second time, shall I bring forth water for you from this rock? And he hits the rock the second time. And God said, speak to the rock. And Moses hits it. In a moment of anger, we understand Moses' frustration. If you have children... You understand Moses' frustration. You understand why he had a lapse, like a momentary flare-up. He, he, ah, you know, in his, in his dealing with this obstinate, stiff-necked people, we totally understand why he slipped up and he struck the rock. But that, because of who he is and what he's doing and dishonoring God in the, in the presence of Israel, what happens? He doesn't get to go into the land. That forfeited his entrance into the land. He begged God, reconsider, please. Nope. He had to go and die in, on Mount Nebo in Moab. And it's shocking to us. God is so harsh. See, that's the point is that when you're the figurehead, when you're the one that's being presented as this is how we treat the living God and you don't treat him as the nation is supposed to, how will the people follow? How will they serve God? So to whom much is given, much is expected. 
Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The first mention of David in the Bible chronologically is 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We know David by character before we ever see him as ruddy, likely meaning red-haired, not red-cheeked. Ruddy and vigorous in his carrying out his father's expectations as a shepherd. A genius musician. Then Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal, to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul, his son Jonathan, and the people who were present with him were staying in Gibeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped in Michmash. And this is the shock that God has said, because of this one lapse, this one offering that you were not authorized to make, because you didn't wait for me as I told you, and I was telling you what God told me to tell you. I'm just carrying his message. Because you dishonored God and disobeyed God, you don't get to be the king anymore. And the consequence is going to be that God takes the Holy Spirit from Saul, and he gives the Holy Spirit to David. Let the pages of your Bible kind of flip over just a couple in 1 Samuel 15. Intentionally, in the design of the saga of Saul and David, designed to, to showcase the contrast between God's rejection of Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and his anointing and choosing of David in 1 Samuel 16. It's, it's, the unbelieving scholars will say this is propaganda for the, for the king, for King David. And that's what all the people in antiquity did. They wrote propaganda to tell the story to make themselves look good. But the problem with that is the David and Bathsheba story, is the census story, is the times when David failed. He is shamed and horrifically um, uh, pilloried after the Bathsheba incident. And so I don't think that the, the unbelieving scholars have a leg to stand on when they describe this as simple propaganda. And furthermore, I question the motives of someone that would devote his life to study of, uh, of a text that he doesn't believe in. <laughs> Very interesting, uh, unbelieving scholarship. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, the Amalekites how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Again, some of the most challenging language in the Bible are these holy war passages where God seems so over the top wrathful. Again, we have fat crayons, we're drawing stick figures, and God is working calculus, as it were. And that's a little silly picture of an infinite dis distinction between us and God. But he already told you why the removal of the Amalekites, the full extermination of the Amalekites from the earth. Because he alone is the creator, and this is how 
they treated him and his people. And what that does, what the Red Sea did with the destruction of Pharaoh and his chariots, what this does is it testifies to the world that they have a creator to whom they must resort. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them, came to the city of Amalek in verse 5 and set an ambush from the valley. Verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agog. Agog. Your Bible might read Agag, but that's because you're reading as English. He captured Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now God said, I'm making a point using you, my lawnmower, go and cut the grass. And Saul says, well, we did, but we only cut part of it because look at this other grass. It's a nice spot. God was doing something theological and demonstrative for his purposes, and Saul was his, his executive to carry it out. He's the Messiah. He's the one carrying out that objective. And he doesn't do it. <clears throat> so then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Notice, Saul didn't have a problem with killing the, 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 um, the non-combatants. He saved the king and the, the, and the booty, the spoil of, of livestock. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. We have plenty of data to see what's going on with this guy. He's not thinking of God. He's thinking, me, 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 me. I forced myself to make a monument of myself so that I could remember how great I myself are. Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. Oh, that's a good greeting. I love when people talk too much and they, you know, they try to cover up what they just stop it. Blessed are you of the Lord. I'm speaking for God here, people. That's Saul's approach. Oh, if, if, saying it's, if saying it made it true, right? But saying it doesn't make it true. The truth is the truth. And my, my many words aren't going to stop the truth from being the truth. I love it. Blessed are you of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? What is that sound? Right? Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's for God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. It is, not, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them till they're exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He calls him to account before 
dropping the hammer. And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Never let someone tell you that these old people 3,000 years ago were dumb and were smart. They can't paint a a, a nuanced picture. They don't have... uh, you know, they're concrete thinkers. They have to think in terms of solids and, and shapes, and, and they're dumb. That's, that's what's being presented a lot in a lot of the, um, the Darwinistic scholarship out there. We're not getting smarter. We're getting dumber. And the nuance of what Saul just said was, listen to it, the nuance is this. I, I did what you said, and here are the things that I did which are in disobedience of what you said are the things that I said. He's trying to gaslight him very clearly. I did it. I did what the Lord said. Ever have a kid try to rationalize with you this way or, or somebody that's working for you or someone that's a subordinate try to, try to twist things and, and put this back on you? What do you do in that case? Cut right through it. I know what you're doing. I'm not going to spend the time and the breath to say with words what we both know is happening here. Just cut right through it. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. What does God think about those sacrifices? What do you think God is? Oh, good. They disobeyed me to bring a, a choice sacrifice. Oh, good. Does, does God want that sacrifice for them? No. So even the justification He's not interested. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is in the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. And then Saul said what you're supposed to say when the prophet tells you of your sin. He said, I've sinned, just like David in 1 Samuel 12. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So we cut right through it and we got to the truth and Saul has a blinding flash of reality. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe And it tore, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then he said, I've sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people. So he does confess, and that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And then we have to read it. Then Samuel said, bring me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him tearfully and said, surely the bitterness of death is past. You just killed all our people, women, children, you know, and, and I'm, but I'm still here. Surely the bitterness of death has passed. What a, what a poisoning, poisonous viper, or venomous, I guess we're supposed to say viper. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. I have to read that verse because it sounds so strange to our ears. He hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. 
What do you do with this? Well, David is guilty in 1 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 11, of something far worse, perhaps, than uh, it seems to us, than what Saul did. Except that God knows David's heart. And he's not done with David, but he has every right to be. But David can say, upon the judgment he receives from God, as we heard from Samuel and or from Nathan in 2 Samuel 11, or 12, sorry, 2 Samuel 12, that God is righteous to speak and pure when he judges. And he can embrace the correction God gives him. And this is a skill that we need to develop in our walk with him. In verse 5, behold, in iniquity I was brought forth, and in sin my mother conceived me. I don't think we got to this one last time. Sin and sin, okay, and the interchange is being born, being conceived, the origin of my existence, my life, is sin. Two interpretations of this interesting verse. The historic one is the one I take, which is that he's speaking of original sin, that people are born sinners. They don't learn to sin. They have to learn to restrain their sin. You don't have to train a child in wickedness. He's going to figure it out. You can, you can increase, you can, you can raise the level of wickedness in the child by bad examples and indulgence and these kinds of things. But left to a child's own devices, his sinful nature is going to express itself. And I want to be uh, fair and, and equitable. Her sin is going to express itself. We're going to be this way because we're sinners. We're born this way. The, the other interpretation I heard from uh, one of my beloved professors, Dallas Seminary, Ron Allen, is that this is a hint that explains why David isn't included at Jesse's table when Samuel comes to town. That David isn't counted among the children because he's illegitimate. That he is the child of a sinful union. And that's the... That's the suggestion, and people are like, oh, wow, you know. But I think that thematically it makes a lot more sense that he's saying, I know what I am. And the contrast between me and my nature and you and your nature is stark all through the psalm. And so he says, I know that I was born a sinner. How about all that chauvinism we have, all that genetic chauvinism of I am from a long-standing race or group of ancestry, and we are a noble and mighty and proud people, all that arrogance people have about their genetic ancestry that amounts today to racism in all its forms and all this insistence on my genetic stock is better than your genetic stock because your genetic stock hurt my genetic stock and my genetic stock was a victim of your genetic stock or our genetic stock was, was stronger than yours and we won and you, your genetic stock lost and we're better and you're worse or however the arrogant stuff about what people did before us you know and, and owning that somehow it's insane insane times we live in, and I would dismiss it all. You're one race, the human race, and the Bible cuts that Gordian knot of, of ancestral rancor about who did what to whom, who shot John, as we used to say in the army. God just cuts that all and says we're all born sinners. What this does, though, is it cuts all the racists and the chauvinists' uh, legs out from under them. You're not from a mighty, renowned, noble people. You're from broken, dirty sinners. We all are. We all are. My illustration of this would be slavery. Of course, I mean when the Irish would, would plunder the British coastlands in the medieval and before, and uh, in the 400s and 500s toward the end of the, of the Roman Empire times. And the Irish pirates would go raid the British coastland and take captives and, um, and enslave them. 
Not what you were thinking we were talking about in slavery, was it? The, Brit, the, the British were taken enslaved by the Irish? Well, that's not the narrative we talk about today. I know, because we're ignorant. That's where you get the story of Patrick of Ireland. He's really from Britain. He was a slave who got free, got gospeled up, went back and, as a missionary to the, to the Irish pirates. See, God's working a, a narrative that isn't what we're being told is the narrative. So all peoples are sinners and broken, and David includes himself. And if he can say this about himself, then you better be able to say it about you. Behold, parallel thought, truth you've desired in the covered places and in that which is hidden wisdom you'll cause me to know. Watch this really quickly. It's pretty tight. Truth you've desired, God, in the covered places and the hidden spots, the things that where I'm just in my inner person, that which is hidden wisdom you will cause me to know. God has a desire for me and God is going to bring it about. But the focus of verse 8 is not what people see of me. It's what's going on inside that God sees of me. This is what God said about David, a man after his heart. This is what God said about David in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel, don't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Don't worry about how handsome Eliab is. He's rejected. It's going to be the man whose heart God has taken uh, and weighed. I want you to see verses 5 and 6 together. Iniquity and sin... Okay, and my origin, my origin is sinful. But God is going to do something about it. Verses 5 and 6 thematically go together. I was born a sinner, but you want to do something different with me. See, there's a tendency we have in ourselves that in the covered places, and that which is hidden, we have our little pet sins that we cultivate. We have our little self-assessment of our value, and we think that it's all about us, back to me, me, Christianity. But if you let God have his way, if you say, God, you do what you want to do to me, he'll reach in there and start shutting down that self-assertion, that self-importance, that stuff that your spouse sees that you can't see, that thing about you that's inside that makes the, the people say, oh, you know, what a great guy, except for this, oh, there's this thing. And you can't see it in yourself because you don't want to look at it. But it's deep down, it's deep inside, and God alone can do this. The Word of God can divide soul from spirit like joints in the mirror as a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is what God wants inside of us is truth. And David, apparently from a very young age, grabbed hold of God's truth and said, let God be true, though every man a liar. And in the inner part of David, he was looking for God to do this work all his life. And so he had this expectation that God would change him. But the focus of verse 6 is not that people see that he's got it all figured out or that he's killed Uriah and, and committed adultery. The focus is that the inner person is the focus of your creator. It's what he's after. That's a fearful thought for a lot of you because you don't want to go there. I don't want to think about that. I want to just be a stimulus response machine. I want my therapist to reach in there and tell me through behavioral th therapy, behavioral psychology. And they're just going to look at my behaviors and say, we kind of figure out what's going on in, the, in, the, in the, the, the fat machine of my brain, little fatty tissue in there. And I'm a machine. But you're not a machine. There is the inner you and God wants it. Father, we thank you for the challenge of Psalm 51 and the opportunity to reflect on these things and meditate on them. Change us by the attention that we pay to your word. 
Help us embrace the attitude of King David about our sin. Father, there are things that David's going to say that don't apply to us, but the spirit, the attitude, the brokenness before you, the arrangement of emphasizing your compassion, loving kindness. Father, these are our, these are our life. Let us live it. In Jesus' name, amen.